session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I get started, um, one comment first. You know, a lot of people will send me suggestions for topics, especially when I pose the question on my Instagram story, and I appreciate all of those suggestions, but I do get messages sometimes that why I don't um, respond or do all the suggestions that are made. And I'm very grateful to get so many suggestions that I can't get to most of them. Um, grateful for everyone for sending them, but I can't get to a lot of the questions that are asked and suggestions that are made. But I do keep track of them in a way, so also I, I'll bring books in that might relate to the topics or talk about them in f- future shows. So uh, be patient, but thank you for sending those suggestions for the topics, but also for the books that I sometimes get as well. Speaking of which, the book of the week for this week is Tyrannical Minds by Dean A. Haycock. Tyrannical Minds, Psychological Profiling, Narcissism, and Dictatorship. And I'm just about 40 pages in, but it's a very interesting read so far, looking at different um, dictators throughout history, trying to understand them doing things like psychological profiling to understand what makes them tick or what made them the way that they are and what they share in common. And as always, we look at history, not just to look at it as a story, but to try to understand what has happened to learn lessons from that. And that's actually something I wanted to talk about today to start the show. Now I'll talk about this book in detail on Monday's show, but um, there was something that came up early in the book, and I am still early in the book myself, about even some people saying we shouldn't try to explain someone like Hitler. And so the author shares about a French resistance fighter and filmmaker named Claude Landsman, and how he thought that to try to explain what Hitler has done in a way would be justifying it at some level. And so we shouldn't even try to explain it. He was just this evil character that did these incredible evil things. And there's no really explaining. And there can be this feeling that explaining means we're justifying. So if you try to understand the causes of why he did what he did or what led to him becoming who he became and taking the actions that he did, it would in some way justify what he did. And I understand that because of the atrocities that were committed and the people who lost their lives and were tortured and suffered and millions of people literally were killed and of course many more were affected, it can seem in vain or it could seem like you're putting their lives in vain or their pain in vain by trying to understand what he did. It's justifying it. But I think it's almost the reverse, that if we don't try to understand what happened, that is more 
taking things or making people's lives be lost in vain. It's because what happened was so horrible that we want to try to understand what happened, not ignore it or not just say it was because of how evil this one human being was, um, and that's it, and just move on. And interestingly, um, saying that he was this chosen one, he himself saw himself as this chosen one who he alone could help bring Germany back to greatness and do all these good things. And so he saw himself in a way as a messiah, and he had this messiah complex. But people almost try to do the opposite, which is to say he was just this one evil human being, that there will never be anyone else like him. So in that way, making him a chosen one too, which I don't think either, of course, he's definitely not some messiah and he was going to save the world or make it better, but I don't think he is a one-off and we should just look at it as one person and there will never be anyone else like him or never has been. I don't think that that is true. Um, and so going back to this concept of trying to understand bad things, at times we don't want to do that. Another example that came to my mind when I was thinking about that topic is um, people who are child molesters. Even that word, when I say it, it's hard for me to say it because I know how sensitive of a topic it is that people don't want to talk about it or when you just mention it, it brings up something negative for people, which I understand. But again, I try to talk about taboo topics on the show because I know when we don't talk about them, the suffering continues. If it's something is real, it exists. We just don't address it and we don't deal with it. So we want to actually understand it. So if I try to understand the psychological profile of someone who is sexually attracted to children, a very horrible thing, it's not because I'm saying what they're doing is okay. It's because I want to understand it better to also help prevent the harm from happening, to prevent people from developing into this way, and also people who are that way, what can we do to prevent them from acting on what's going on in their mind, or to, if possible, treat them to change what they're feeling and what they're attracted to. So it's because the pain is so important that I think it's worth looking at. It's not because I am trivializing it or I want to justify and say, oh, it's okay that people are doing these things. No, I actually think it is probably the worst act someone could do to sexually violate a child. And unfortunately, as a therapist, you hear many stories of people who have experienced this. It is very, very common for people to go through experiences like that, unfortunately. And so that's why I think it's worth looking at. So when I read that part of the book, which was early on in a way looking at, is it even worth trying to understand these people who've done such horrible things? I think it's important to make that distinction that by trying to understand something, we are not trying to justify it. By trying to explain something, we're not saying that it's okay. So if someone tells me, that someone was mad at them and burned their house down, I'm going to ask them what happened. Not because I think it was okay or whatever they did was worth someone burning their house down, but I'm sure something happened that led up to that happening. So they can say, oh, we got into this fight and we had a bad business deal and blah, 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 and then they burned their house down. Now, that makes me understand it better, but it doesn't make me ever justify, okay, it makes sense that he came and burned your house down. It's more for the understanding. And so um, this issue of actually people who are attracted to children. Again, it's a very sensitive topic and one that people don't like to even hear about or talk about, but it's an important one because what happens when we make things taboo is, and I, I remember hearing a story on NPR about this, is if we make it so that people can't come forward 
to even get help, we create a big problem. And that's what we see with people who have attraction to children, even before they've acted on it. If they feel this attraction, or if they're unsure, they're going through this confusion, let's say, even before they recognize it, they have a very hard time getting help. And some people have shared stories about when they went to a therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist, and they were very supportive up until the moment that they mentioned that they might have an attraction towards children. And the person didn't want to even help them anymore or saw them as a monster and saw them as someone they didn't want to help or wasn't worthy of help uh, and basically kicked them out of their office, if not literally, but in a way figuratively because they weren't going to help them or to work with them. And to me, that is a problem. Uh, we have to somehow find a way where we want to try to understand things and face the issues. But if we just want to say these people are evil and not worthy of help, then we create a bigger problem because we don't let these people come forward to get help and they still exist. Ignoring them doesn't make these issues disappear and they'll then unfortunately perpetrate actions that cause great harm. So as controversial as it might sound, I would rather we make it okay for people to come forward and say they have this attraction. And if they've acted on it, I'm not saying we say it's okay what they've done. Absolutely not. So again, understanding doesn't mean justification, and understanding doesn't mean no consequences. If someone has done something bad, they have to pay the consequences, pay the price, whatever that might be. So I'm not saying we should ignore the pain or make it okay, but we want to recognize a problem when it exists and recognize that if we ignore it, we're just going to make it worse. So as bad as sometimes things are, we always want to try to understand them. Or if someone comes into my office and wants to talk about just physical abuse they experience from their parents, one of the things that can be helpful, of course, letting them express the pain and giving them compassion and empathy for that pain is important, but also is for them at times to understand what might have led to their parents acting this way. Very often they'll recognize, you know, my grandfather was abusive towards my father. And so to my father, this was the way you raise kids. This is, was the way of being a dad, was you have to show them this kind of, if you, they maybe thought of it as love, but this was love to them. And so he thought he was helping me by doing this, even though it was so hurtful. And not that that makes it okay or makes it that it wasn't bad or wrong, but that understanding actually can even lead to some healing for the individual of recognizing, okay, my father didn't know any better or my father thought this was the right way. This is all he experienced, so he thought that's what he should give me. And I'm definitely not to blame, um, and he is to blame for what he did, but I don't want to just focus on the blame. I want to actually understand it better. And people can feel better once they have this understanding to eventually get to the point where they can forgive whoever it was that they hurt them. And even here, forgiveness doesn't mean what you did was okay, what you did was now right, or you're completely exonerated, and if you did that again, it would be okay. Absolutely not. It means that I'm able to forgive you for what has happened to move forward. I can make peace with that. It was hurtful. It was painful. I didn't deserve that. You should not have done that, but I can forgive you to let go. And as I always tell people, you forgive not for the other person, you forgive for yourself. Because holding on to that anger and holding on to that resentment, as the, the saying goes, is like drinking poison, hoping it'll hurt the other person, but it just hurts you. So the understanding isn't about giving them a 
justification or saying it was okay what they did. It was to get an explanation and understanding that actually can help you make peace and to move forward. So books like this, uh, like the book I'm going to read this week, Tyrannical Minds by Dean A. Haycock, which is looking at different um, despots and dictators and tyrants throughout history, is very important to me because we want to understand what has happened. Because to me, Hitler was a horrible human being, but I don't think he was the only person that could have become or done the things he did. Others have done uh, in some ways similar. People have even caused more loss of life than him. So I don't think it's going to be helpful to us, and it's not even accurate to just think of someone like him as a one-off, as one person. Understanding his psychological profile and development, also understanding the environment he was in, the societal and cultural context he was in, whoever else was in not to justify, but again, to explain and understand, can be helpful to help us in the future. I don't think um, there will be anyone exactly like Hitler again, but do I think anyone could be like him? Yes, and there currently are people in the world who will and can be like him, and in the right circumstances, or really the wrong circumstances, can have a huge negative impact like he did as well. And so it's important for us not to ignore it because we want to say he is so bad he's not even worth trying to understand, but to actually recognize, no, the pain and damage he caused was so bad and people suffered so much that it's important for us to look at the issue, to understand it, to see how we can learn from it, to prevent it from happening again, to make things better. Uh, so I thought that point was interesting. That was brought up early in this book. Looking forward to reading the rest of it and sharing it with you on Monday night's show. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Um, yes, Dr. Dolakwi. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk with you. My pleasure. Thanks I, for calling. Now, um, you asked, you said about the nutrition, you know, you're worried about that. Has her pediatrician expressed any concern about her not getting enough nutrition? He was concerned um, because I 
that brought it up to his attention, and he said if he, she's active, um, I'm not worried. Um, mm-hmm. But apparently, um, you know, she he wanted her to be evaluated. We didn't take it, um, you know, further. Okay. Well, I mean, I'd want to make sure she's physically okay, um, because being a picky eater can be difficult for parents, but it's not necessarily a problem as long as the child gets what they want and they just like a few things and they're okay with it. There's no need that they have to try everything or try different things. Um, I'm not saying we ignore the issue completely, but we also don't want to put more pressure on it because actually usually that leads to even pickier eating or creates power struggles and dynamics that can lead to even bigger problems that we don't want to create. So, yes, we think to ourselves, well, it's good to try different foods and have a variety of things, but for some people and some kids, new foods creates more anxiety or doesn't feel good. So as much as we think, but it's nice to try different types of foods and I enjoy it, they don't enjoy it. It's going to actually create more anxiety for her. So um, don't make it the ultimate goal that she has to try so many different things or that somehow it's so much better if she tries different foods. If she, again, nutritionally is okay, if there was some physical deficiency and she was uh, potential for getting sick or having health issues, I'd be more concerned about it. But if she's okay with what she eats and it's okay and she's doing all right, then then I don't want to make it a bigger deal than it is. Now, um, just trying to get an understanding of the history, has she always been a picky eater since? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I'm not at all pushing the fact um, maybe I should rephrase what I said about the variety, is um, pretty much no fruits, no vegetables. Mm-hmm. It could go for days to weeks to even months if she even picks, like, one um, strawberry or uh, a piece of apple or just some lettuce mm-hmm. or maybe some, um, like, the variety, as I mentioned already, um, it's not variety at all. It's just very simple. Like, I can choose and write what she eats all together from protein to carbs to vegetables and fruits, and it's not going to even make a whole list. Mm-hmm. That's how bad it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, even when you say that's how bad it is, I get that you want it to be more, but it's okay if it's not that many different things. Um, and if she's always been a picky eater, one thing we also have to be aware of is that it's not so much just her choice. I'm not saying that nothing can change and she has no ability to affect what's going on, but she's pickier. Some kids and some people just in general are more picky about certain things, sometimes with smells or touches or different uh, things can make them not feel good. And so for some kids, it could be the textures or certain tastes that makes them... all of all of yeah. Okay. So it's, you know, so, and I say that, so we recognize it, that it's not just your daughter being difficult, because even the way you said it, she's being very picky, which is in a way true. But I want you to also recognize that it's not just something completely in her control that she's saying, you know what, I'm going to be picky. Now, if you create a power struggle with her, then she might start to play into that more. But um, I hope you can recognize that at some level, this is something that is a way the is this a way that she was born, that she's more sensitive to things? Or even if it wasn't born, but basically from being a baby, she had this uh, feeling or experience. It, it reminds you of a caller I had Monday, a similar type of, it was different, but I was letting him know 
It's like if your child woke up and said, I'm cold, you wouldn't say, no, you're supposed to be warm. You know, it's not something that just is in her control that she's trying to do. She has really a different experience than most people do when it comes to foods. So we want to make sure we have that compassion for her, that this is tough for her too, that it's not something easy for her. Okay. Now you said from early age, she had this issue, but it seemed to, you're implying that it's gotten worse as far as her, she's more limited in what she eats or has it not changed much? You know, maybe, maybe it hasn't changed much. Um, but, um, I would just think that, um, you know, she doesn't, I don't honestly know, but I I don't see much of a difference, but I was hoping because I've heard that their, um, taste and their food sensitivity Mm-hmm. goes away or might go away as they grow yeah. older and maybe that was what I had in mind to mm-hmm. happen mm-hmm. and it didn't yeah. I don't think I don't see much of a difference. Okay, well I mean she she's just 11 and some kids do quote unquote grow out of it, but also the way you're talking about it, it it's I can understand it's frustrating and it, maybe it creates challenges we can talk about, but we're not nothing really bad is happening. You know, it's if she's healthy and okay, but she only likes some foods, yeah, maybe you'd like for her to try this or have that. Um, but if she's okay, then that's okay. And one thing that some parents can experience, especially more um, moms or even female relatives, especially in cultures like our own Persian culture, that they feel like food is a way they give love. And so when their child doesn't accept or their loved one doesn't accept the food, somehow they're rejecting their love. But this is not the case, and there's so many other ways you do show her love, and she experiences that love. Um, And even if she just eats some of the food, she could still feel that love from you providing for her. So we have to make sure it's not about our issue of, I want my child to eat this food that I make or this food that I bought for her or whatever else it might be, that if she doesn't want it, that's okay. And we have to be okay with that and not put our own problem onto her or project that if I only ate pasta and pizza and this, I would be miserable. I would hate that diet. But maybe she's okay with it because she likes those foods. She's all right. And she gets more stressed out eating something differently than it being enjoyable for her. You know, so we have to try to put ourselves in her shoes and recognize it's a different experience from yours. And that's okay. Just like she might like a song you don't like at all. That's perfectly all right. She can listen to that song and enjoy it. Great. And you listen to something else. There's no problem there. Possibly. I'd want to understand it first. I don't want to just focus on the should she get tested or not. Overall, I think it could be a good idea, but I'd want to understand even you said overreacted, but what, how she reacted and even in saying overreacted, it means it was too much. Now it sounds like she had a strong reaction, but again, I want us to recognize when she feels something, she feels that. So it wasn't necessarily that she overreacted. She really, let's say, got scared. And we want to understand that. So we always want to have a stance of curiosity when it comes to our kids, really with anyone, but especially with our children. So when you say, I told her, let's go back to the doctor, and she had a very strong reaction, 
rather than going to a place of, oh, she's just overreacting and making it too big of a deal, we want to try to understand what she's expressing, what's underneath that. Um, so did you ask her what made her not want to go back? Yeah, she just, you know, she said that, she, I don't want to go back to the doctor. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm very healthy and I'm not getting sick, which mm -hmm. is true. Um, she's actually um, from among everybody who I know gets um, less sick than anybody else. Mm -hmm. uh, and she said, there's no reason I, I need to go back, see that doctor <laughs> with some words. <laughs> okay, some worse words. Yeah, okay. We could leave those off the radio. Yeah, okay. So she was not happy about it. Um, and so maybe she's okay. And, and so we get the sense that she felt very judged, which the doctor probably is part of it, but I think she feels very judged by you. And I don't know about her father or who else, but she feels very judged. And so doesn't feel good for her to go back and be told or be felt that this feeling that like you're doing something wrong or you're bad. And so that's, to me, what I'm hearing, at least part of the issue. Maybe she also has fear of getting tested and things like blood tests and other uh, other kind of things. But that's the sense I'm getting is she felt very judged in the whole process. And that's something that I really hope you can be aware of is not to make her feel judged by this. It might already be too late to a degree because I think she feels that. But that when we make this such a big deal, first of all, if you make it a power struggle, you're almost definitely going to lose. And by lose, I mean it's just going to make things worse. So she might get more restrictive or she'll see that this is a way that she can have power over you. Oh, I can use this to my advantage. If I don't eat something, mom gets mad and I can get her control. Or even if I want her approval, all of a sudden I can just try something and get her to have such a strong reaction. So even with that, I was going to say don't have um, such strong reactions based on what she does. If she tries a new food, I don't want you to throw a party, invite all the relatives over to say <laughs> she tried two strawberries, so we're having everyone over for a party. You know, We don't want to give that much of a uh, weight to it, importance to it. Because it's important, again, if she's having the vitamins she needs and she's physically healthy, I don't care if she eats the exact same food every single day. As long as she's okay with it. Now then if she says, well, now when I go out with my friends, I have some issues or something, then that's things to look at. And she can then try to figure out how she can work around that or work with that. But in general, her being um, in this way different about what she likes to eat, I'm not so worried about it as long as she's healthy and okay. And I don't want to make it a bigger deal than it has to be. And I really want to make sure you don't make her feel judged about it. Now, do you have other children? Yes. Okay. How many other kids and what, what are their ages? Uh, one, three-year-old. Three-year-old? Three-year-old. Okay. Oh, three years older. Okay. Yeah. And so I'm sure, you know, that child, just based on obviously you're talking about this one, is not going to be as picky. And so we also want to make sure we don't make it seem like, oh, see, I don't know if it's a boy or, is it a boy or a girl, the other child? Sister. Sorry? Sister. Sister. Okay. So we don't say, oh, look, you know, your sister, she tried this and this and this. Don't you think you want to try this and this? And, you know, these kind of comparisons that we do or ways of trying to encourage her, um, the comparison part, especially, I would advise against. We don't want to make her feel, and it's not going to work anyway. It's just going to make her feel worse. And then you're going to create a competition and a, a whole bunch of other things. So I would make sure you don't bring it up in a way of see how she ate all those things and she liked it and she enjoyed it or whatever you might say to get her to think it's okay or it's a good idea to try it. That's probably not going to work. Now, you can explore ways with her, but it has to be things she also wants to do of they say sometimes you can be creative or make it fun or try different things or introduce new things and see if she likes sometimes maybe it's, oh, this fruit I actually do like. 
because the texture and the taste works for me and it doesn't bother me. You can do those types of things and there's lots of um, uh, assistance online you can find about that. My guess is based on the fact that you're calling me, you've done those Google searches already, but there's things you can try in that regard. But I would make sure you don't make this into a bigger problem than it has to be. going to go ahead and try. As far as comparison, um, that was the first day I listened to um, father a lot, too. Mm -hmm. That's really our goal every day. We do not compare. Good. Just tell them you, you don't compare yourselves with anybody else. Just be yourself and, you know, everybody's different and there's nothing wrong with you being you. Mm -hmm. you know, and we did that. And okay. But now, now you're saying we did that and those words are great. I'm sure you've done it in a lot of ways, but the words... Are important but the actions behind it are, are even more important so if we say it doesn't matter you can be different but then later on we say but you know everyone else eats foods and you don't then we're not telling her it's okay to be different so make sure you don't even indirectly give her that and that likely is going to happen so that if she's eating differently than other people my concern is her health if she is okay i don't care if she doesn't try sushi and her friends do you know yeah so uh, you know, that that's what I'm saying. It's, like, it's about her, not about other people, that other people eat things you don't. It said, no, are you healthy? Oh, you're healthy? Great. As long as you're healthy, do you like the foods you eat? Or let's say she said, you know, actually, mom, it's hard for me to try new foods, but sometimes I get sick of these foods, so I don't like it. That would be different. But if she says, I'm okay with it, and she's physically healthy, then we don't want to create a problem when there isn't a problem. Does she have a sensitivity? Yes. But is it a big problem necessarily? No. Just like someone might have a sound sensitivity and they find ways around it, but it doesn't mean they have to have a huge problem. Now, if they had some ear issue or it was affecting their health, then I'd be concerned. But people have, they are different. That What you said was very good, but do we have to make sure we act on what we're saying because that's going to be even more impactful. And very big to not create a power struggle with her because that's just going to never get better and only get worse. Thank you very much. Sure. Advice. Thanks for calling. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Going into our next commercial break, studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, I wanted to talk about something that happened over the weekend on Sunday. Um, I think I bring up sports almost once a week now, but I'll bring it up again. But uh, there was a moment that happened... Um, Sunday afternoon at the end of a very exciting game between the Philadelphia 76ers and the Toronto Raptors and a last second shot ended the series, which meant that one series, uh, team, the Toronto Raptors, went on and the Philadelphia 76ers were eliminated. Their season was over and there was a lot of emotions. It was in Toronto, so the crowd was going crazy and the, the Toronto Raptors team was all having a great time and celebrating and I just couldn't believe what just happened in that last second shot, which even went in, bouncing all around the rim. It was really crazy. Me and Parham were watching and, and yelled pretty loud ourselves, even though we didn't really care much who won, but just the moment was so uh, incredible. And then there was a member from the team that lost, Joel Embiid, who started crying on the court. He was so sad that the team had just lost, and especially in this shocking way. And he was in tears. And you actually saw a very nice moment where... Mark Gasol, who was on the other team, was comforting him. So rather than just going to celebrate with his team, he was right next to him and gave him a hug and was probably, you can't say hear what he was saying, but giving some comforting words to him, which I thought was a very nice moment. But then as always, when 
a man cries, especially an athlete cries, you get a lot of um, reaction on the internet. And so I saw lots of memes about the crying, lots of comments about the crying, lots of posts about the crying, some in support saying, good for him, this shows he was passionate and into it, and that's how it is. Others saying he was too much of a reaction or it wasn't good, or directly or indirectly saying it was not manly or did not show masculinity to be crying about the outcome of the game. And so it made me want to talk about this topic, which I bring up every so often, which is about crying in general, but especially crying for men and how it is seen as a sign of weakness, that it's not manly, and because of that, men shouldn't do it. And if you do cry, it makes you look weak. And in general, there is that uh, feeling that crying is weakness. So whether a woman does it or a man, it can be weak, but especially if a man does it, it's weak. And I completely disagree with this notion that crying is a sign of weakness. At times, crying can be a very uh, a big sign of strength, that you are able to let yourself feel something and let yourself express that feeling. It isn't a sign of weakness. I've worked with people or even just with friends after a breakup who will talk about how they have pride about not crying. Oh, you know, I, I didn't even cry once after we broke up and very tough. As you can probably imagine, usually the guy will say something like that, but they're so proud of themselves that they didn't cry as if this is a sign of strength. And if you're in a long-term relationship, and before actually I make this comment, people can express grief or sadness in different ways. So I'm not saying you have to cry. But if you are in a long-term relationship and it ends and you don't have any bad feelings, and if you don't get sad, I'm sad for you. Because that's not a sign of strength to me. That's a sign of weakness. It either means to me you were not that close to your partner, so you didn't let yourself get very close to them so that when the relationship ended, you're not feeling very much. That's not a sign of strength. That's probably coming from a fear of intimacy or closeness or not having the trust in letting yourself feel emotionally connected to someone. Or you're right now hiding your own feelings, which is not at all a sign of strength. It's more a sign of weakness, that you're not willing to acknowledge your feelings and you're willing not willing to acknowledge the pain. So Sometimes people even who've broken up, they say, oh, you know, I'm still so sad, but he or she is dating people and so happy. And so I'm in a way the loser in this uh, breakup because they're okay and I'm not. And again, there's no one way to grieve, but just because someone is quote unquote moving on doesn't mean they're actually doing better than you. Very often people try to move on to mask the pain. So they're very sad after the breakup. But rather than feel the pain, try to learn from what happened. Um, the book I talked about Monday, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings. To me, the pain you experience after something like a breakup is a, a good reason for a bad feeling. And we have to try to understand and learn from the feelings, allow ourselves the space to grieve and to be sad, to learn the lessons that are important for us to learn from whatever we experience and then move on. But if someone after a week um, is already in another serious relationship, that doesn't mean that person is winning. You'll see that a lot on social media too. Two people will break up and they'll say, well, so-and-so is now doing this or that. So they're winning in this breakup. I don't see it that way at all. Um, so this idea that crying is weak, I think is one we need to change and really think seriously about. And especially when it comes to men crying, 
And people might think, well, that's just a sign of weakness and we take it as some kind of reality that crying is weakness for men, of course, or crying is weakness, period. Uh, And it doesn't seem like it's a cultural thing, but it definitely is. Because before, um, maybe thousands of years ago even, but I'm sure more recently, it was at times seen as a sign of strength for a man to be moved to tears about an important issue or matter. It showed that he was strong or that he cared enough about something. Fortunately, many people still see it that way. It might not be the majority view, but many people still do. But it's not something people should think of as it's a black and white thing. Just like even uh, I remember reading in the, I think it was the book Social, it talked about how the color pink used to be um, something that they would give for baby boys, not baby girls. For some reason, they thought it made more sense for the boys. So even though we think of pink as the girl color and blue as the boy color, there was a time when that was reversed. So as much as it seems almost like this innate thing that pink is girl and blue is boy, it wasn't always that way. And in a different way with crying, it's not that it was always seen as a weakness for a man to do that. This is something that has been happening more recently, that we see it as something weak or bad. Um, In a different way, I see the same thing happen at funerals. People have a funeral for a loved one, and let's say the kids are there, if it was someone who had a few children, and they'll say, oh, you know, so-and-so was so strong at the funeral. They didn't cry. They were so strong. And again, I don't want to say people should grieve in a certain way, and maybe the person didn't cry at the funeral but cried somewhere else, so I don't want to say if you didn't cry at the funeral or at some moment you were doing something wrong, Um, but that we even see it as a sign of strength to not cry, which of course implies that it's a weakness if someone were to cry, I think is a problem. It's understandable if you're at the funeral for someone you love dearly, that you're going to be in tears. You're going to be sad. And that's actually one of the reasons why we have things like funerals, these types of rituals, is because it can be a way to formalize the goodbye, which can be helpful. That's why people sometimes will say, I didn't cry until the funeral because we started to put the body or put the casket in the ground, or even I saw the casket and knew that my loved one was in there, and the death became more real, and they felt the pain, or they started to feel the reality of what was going on. We know that many times when people lose a loved one, uh, they can be in various stages, but there can be some shock and disbelief. Denial can be the first stage that people go through, where they really don't believe that it's happened yet. It doesn't seem real. And so having a funeral can be a way of making it very real. This is actually happening. This person is gone. Also, it could be a moment to celebrate and memorialize them. But we are saying goodbye to this person because they are gone. And so for a lot of people, they'll feel whatever they're feeling then. And that can be very important to let them go through that. But the fact that we see it as strength to not cry and weakness to cry, I think, is a big problem, which has negative effects on how we deal with our emotions because we have this feeling about feelings which is that things like crying are bad or they make us feel bad so we don't like them but that's why i like the title of the book i talked about monday night good reasons for bad feelings meaning that i sometimes i'll say sad feelings are not bad feelings so we shouldn't think that because sadness doesn't feel good in the moment it makes it something bad or not good or something that just needs to be get rid of That's what people think a lot of times. They think, oh, if you're sad, how do we get rid of it? How do we cheer you up immediately to take away the sadness? And people will do that with their friends. And then alone, we'll 
turn to drugs or alcohol or food or gambling or whatever else just to take away that sad feeling because we think that's the only thing we're supposed to do with sad feelings is get rid of them. Not recognize that they can have value and also be telling us something. Let me try to understand why I am sad right now. Let me understand that because that's telling me something. Just like when I have physical pain, that's telling me that there's something going wrong in my body. This emotional pain is telling me something also. If you're in a relationship and it's making you sad, it's important for you to pay attention to that sadness because that's telling you that, you know what, maybe this is not the right relationship. But if you just try to ignore, mask, or numb that pain, you won't be hearing that information. Our feelings are information in a way. Not that it means... We have to just listen to them 100% as a truth, but it's one source of information. So if you're feeling sad every time you see the person you're dating, you might want to take a look at that. Oh, you know, every time I see this person afterwards, I feel really sad. Maybe you'll realize it's because you miss them and you want to see them again, but maybe you might realize it's because they put you down in some subtle ways or they aren't very kind to you or they don't make you feel very good or you don't feel like it's the right person and something doesn't feel right. So you want to pay attention to those feelings and not ignore them. And then coming back to men and crying, as I initiated this topic about the basketball player Joel Embiid crying after the game they lost, when we tell men it's not okay for them to cry and it's a sign of weakness, well, men feel sadness and pain too. That's part of being a human being. So they're going to feel those things and instead of being able to express them comfortably, they're going to hold them in. And when we hold in feelings, we know that's going to have negative consequences physically and psychologically for us. And what I see as a common experience is that men hold in their pain. They get hurt. And even because they feel bad about feeling sad, it tends to create reactions of anger. So instead of experiencing or expressing their sadness to, let's say, their intimate partner or a friend or a loved one, they'll express anger towards them later on in some other way. Because unfortunately, we make it very clear that getting angry, even being aggressive, can be a very manly thing and something we should be happy about or proud of as a man that you got angry at someone, even your girlfriend or wife. But to express sadness to them would be a sign of weakness. And that's something that unfortunately causes a lot of pain. Um, and men, if they feel like they can't express that pain, they're more likely to turn to alcohol or drugs than women are. Fortunately, women often will turn to other women or friends to talk about what they're going through. And that's great. A lot of times men, because they don't feel comfortable talking to their guy friends to say that they were hurt by something or sad about something, and maybe they don't know who else they can turn to to talk about what's going on, they feel like they have to deal with it on their own. And so drugs and alcohol can be a great way to numb. I say great, not really that it's actually good, but in that moment it can feel like a great way to deal with that pain to get rid of it because they don't know what else to do and they have to numb it. And of course, because it's seen to them as it's weak to feel sad, they then judge themselves. Oh, I'm such a this or that. Some of them words I can't say on the air because I'm even sad about this. And so they'll judge themselves about feeling sad, which makes them feel even worse. So I take this topic very uh, importantly, or I think it's very important because we can't ignore what is the impact of telling people that it's not okay to feel certain things, especially to feel things that are human. It's human to feel sadness and pain. And to me, crying is an expression of that feeling, although we can also cry tears of joy. Sometimes, you know, you'll watch a big match in soccer in the World Cup and the losers and the winners are both crying because they're both so passionate and so into what's happening and it means so much to them that both sides 
might be feeling being feel overwhelmed by emotions and it comes out in that way and especially i think to tell men that it's not okay to cry or to make fun of men for crying still something i see all the time that uh, when men cry it becomes a meme or they use that picture uh, or they'll you know comment on it as something funny i think that is a negative thing that expresses this underlying feeling that it's weak and unmanly to cry and i actually think it's great when someone cares enough about something that they do cry i've mentioned this before so even for me if someone cries after they lost a game i don't think of that as weak so much i think that shows how much they wanted it how bad they wanted to win and i hope that actually we all have things in our life that we care a lot about that we put ourselves in situations and things where we really are going for something where we care a lot about if we win or lose now if it devastates us forever that's not good i don't think that would be a good thing because we hopefully can bounce back at some point but in that moment if we feel something really strong i think that's great and even in life we should be putting ourselves into situations or pushing ourselves and challenging ourselves in ways and in things that are important enough to us that we might even cry when we win or lose or when we get a positive result or we get a bad result because we care that much so um seeing what happened in that game and his reaction Joel Embiid and then I was very touched by Mark Gasol giving him some consoling on the court they were opponents and even you can say enemies on the court but in that moment still on the court he showed that human side that we're still two human beings I'm going to show you that compassion um but also seeing the reaction from people online and just in general about him crying made me want to bring up this topic again that it's okay to cry it's okay for men to cry it's not a sign of weakness um and I shall also mention that as much as we can say all oh, men should be okay with it and they should cry we as a society created together men and women because some women will say it's not okay or it's weak for a man to cry so just like if we see something that women are experiencing we say women should change this or that and usually know that the solution involves everyone making a change whatever it might be in this case we all have to try to change this mindset that it's weak for a man to cry and accept that it is quite okay even at times a sign of actually strength not weakness all right we've reached our next commercial break studio number 3104410555 we'll be right back welcome back studio number 3104410555 let's go to a caller radio hamra you're on the air um hi dr holakwi hi thanks for calling um, am i on the air yes we're on the air thank you okay. all right uh thank you for um answering our questions and being so helpful My to iranian community i really appreciate that and i trust uh, very much uh in your views and the way you express uh the answers to our questions well thank you very much um, i i had a question regarding my son mm-hmm. he's an adult okay. he's a man 38 years old just turned 30 and uh there's a bit of history on uh on this situation uh and uh, following up with that i was discussing this with my ex-husband your friends and talking about this um there was a, a situation where he came to me and was very upset and he decided that to, to get to the bottom of things and he went um you know i uh, asked him to see you but i think because of the distance and other matters uh, he decided to go to 
uh, landmark forum. Okay. And the, I think I brought this up once with you. Yeah, okay. He went to that program, and uh, what, I mean, usually um, they listen to people who are closer to them, cousins who went through the program, and he he wanted to go through the program, and I think also the need for being connected to a greater community with the same, um, you know, issues. Uh, so he went to that program, and uh, it's been over a year. Um, he stopped going. He went to a lot of their, uh, their courses, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he started feeling better. Uh, I, I see him very um, scarcely late, like maybe once uh, or once every two months, and when he came to see me for Mother's Day, he, I asked him, how are you feeling? He said, uh, getting better. But I... What, what, when you I, say getting better, even what's, what does that mean, getting better from what? It was? Meaning getting over that feeling of uh, intense feeling of sadness mm-hmm. due to um, a couple of things that happened in his life, uh, which he never expressed it to us on, on, uh, until... Uh, it was unbearable for him, and he came to me and, and expressed it to me. He, him and his girlfriend of nine years uh, being together had some uh, difficulties working out their um, differences. Mm-hmm. And um, I just don't want to get into that detail. Sure, not My, sure. The reason I'm bringing this up to you is to give you a um, just a synopsis of what brought me to this uh to ask you this question. When I was talking to my, uh, to him, he said, better, but as I'm talking to him, I'm, I'm again getting the feeling that he doesn't want to uh, face the real issue. Mm-hmm. So I'm just, uh, I spoke with my ex, uh, again, my friends, and we talked about his situation, um, you know, every now and then, and I told him, told my ex, husband, it's a good idea that we talk with him uh, or say to him it would benefit him if he sees a counselor. And and, and my ex was saying that I'm not sure if uh, you can uh, say anything like that to, an, uh, to a man. I said, it, mm-hmm. we're not saying anything. We're just asking him to do something for himself, to to, you know, to see a counselor. Well, so okay. my question... Yes, go ahead. Yes, go ahead. No, but is your question about can you or should you bring... Yes, is it a good idea? Does it... Could it make any difference? Uh, is it is it inappropriate or would it hurt him if, uh, if I told him, like, I wanted to pose the question uh, like this, uh, that I observe some... Um, Things that I believe you would benefit seeing Farid or mm-hmm. whoever else. But I wanted to make sure that he sees you because I have talked about you a lot and I have asked him to listen to some of your podcasts. And But, um, you know, as much as I, I appreciate the publicity, but making it about, that, that makes it about you, that he should see, for example, even me. I wouldn't, that's not to me, the that part of it I don't like. Okay. To tell him you should see this person, or even tell him listen to this, or you can. 
I like this. Do you want to listen to this? And so that's a, you know, taking a step back, even, you know, you yourself said, I have a, I don't, did you say 38? His He's age? 38. He's yeah. He's an adult man. Yes, that's what I'm saying, man. So that, that's the point, you know, you even yourself said man. And so I want you to remember that he's a man that he's going to make his own decisions. He has to be given that space and that right to give, make the decisions he wants to make. And so you want to make sure you're not, you can make, if you want suggestions, it also depends on your relationship with him. So, you know, you ask me a question like, will it hurt him? First of all, I can never say it will or won't hurt him for, to hear some things. I don't know so many things from how he is, how you are, your relationship and exactly how you're going to say it to him. So I can't tell you. It will or won't hurt him. But overall, I want you to be aware of not trying to do too much in his life, which some of that I feel from how you're saying even, I want him, he should see you. Uh, you know, that to me is too involved in trying to control the situation, which isn't good overall and even a good way to try to help. So that's one thing. Um, now about... That's the, yes. That's exactly the reason that I called because uh, we have a very close relationship. Okay. He, talks to me about a lot of uh, his uh, feelings. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, so that's good. Now, now going back to this, to me about bringing up um, you know, for, that someone could see someone for therapy. I mean, I said could rather than should. Um, say it again. Say I said could instead of should as far as seeing a okay. therapist even. That, that's what I'm saying is I would be aware of the, the language you use is very important. Now, you're saying you guys have a close relationship close can be good too close can be bad but nonetheless we won't have to dissect that but even when you bring it up to someone the words i bring i mention this a lot on my show rather than saying to someone you need help which comes off usually as judgmental um, i prefer uh, you deserve help so if he's telling you about so when I, i tell parents especially when they're you know teenagers younger kids about connecting with the pain so when he if he comes to you says i'm down or I'm sad, or life has been so difficult, or I'm going through this problem, empathize with him first. So I'm like, that seems very difficult, and that seems painful. Tell me more. We can talk. And don't try to also fix the problems in general, but especially because of his age. And then there can be a moment where you see that you can say, you know, because of how hard things are, or how much pain you're going through, sometimes I think you, you would deserve, or it could be good for you to see a therapist. What do you think? Something like that. So it's more a, it's a suggestion, but also a question and a conversation rather than a directive of you should see a therapist and not only should you see a therapist, this is the therapist you should see. To me, that part of it is, is too intrusive and too much. It's a suggestion. And then also it's a suggestion, meaning if he takes it, okay. If he doesn't also, okay, you're not going to force it or put too much pressure on it. And even if he sees a therapist, that doesn't mean he's going to get just fixed or healed. I don't like that word fixed anyway, but we don't know what's going to happen. So it's a thought. I think it's okay to bring it up. It depends on a lot of things. You're saying the relationship is good. I sometimes work with people that say, you know, can I tell this person that I barely know? Well, then that can come off differently. If you don't really know someone, you don't have much of a relationship, then it just feels intrusive that someone is coming to me and telling me what to do or how to live my life or giving me that kind of advice. Unfortunately, because of the stigma we have with mental illness, and for people going to therapy and seeking out mental health services, at times people can get insulted when you say, see a therapist, because it sounds like you're, to some people, that you're saying you're crazy, uh, you're weak, you need help, you have problems, you have issues, where we all have issues right. and problems and all those things, and we can benefit from it. But people can take it in a negative way, 
uh, is to imply that you're saying you have those types of issues that I was saying. So we have to be aware that they, we might imply, we might mean something. You might think therapy, like for me, I think therapy is great for everyone to go to. But I understand when I'm telling someone, they might not feel that way. So I have to, uh, I tell people sometimes, you know, we talk about walking in someone's shoes. We have to try to listen with someone else's ears. What are they going to hear when I say this? Not what do I hear if I say it? So we have to think, what is he going to hear when you tell him? Or if you're telling your loved one about going to therapy, you might think it's great. But if to them it means you're saying they're crazy, you have to be aware of that. And that can even be part of the conversation. But we have to be aware of how they're going to hear what we're telling them. Correct. Um, thank you for that. Sure. Uh, he asked me, <clears throat> actually, when he came to me last year, he called me, <clears throat> sorry, uh, he called me asking me if I know of someone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that's, uh, that's the reason I, and I never pushed it again, so okay. I never interfere, mm-hmm. actually, with his affairs. Okay. But, um, that's why I'm checking with you. By the way, the language is, I guess, um, the should and the have to and all of that. <clears throat> I'm sorry. That's okay. That language is, uh, I think, the language barrier. Yeah, that and that does. Yeah, that does come up. I understand. So I just because if I hear as a therapist, we're always paying very close attention to the words. So I hear the words and I, I have to mention them. Even hopefully, if you won't use it, let's say, but for someone else as well. Um, but it seems like he's already come to you saying he's looking for a therapist. So that's also, that also is part of the context of this conversation, or if you want to talk to him, you know, so it shows he's right. at some level open to it. Maybe he's not right now, but he has been. So yeah, I, I don't think you bringing it up to him. It's going to be like, I can't believe you brought this up. Um, but you know, we want to make sure it's in a way that it, it doesn't feel like he's being judged by what you're saying. And the thing with things like landmark forum, I don't think of them as, it's like there's a lot of courses like that even in farsi people have classes like that they're not definitely all bad but i think sometimes they're sold as the solution to all your problems and if you do this course or these series of courses it's going to fix every issue you've ever had and i i don't like that and i i did one of the classes many years ago that's similar to landmark and there were some good things but some things i really didn't like about it also um so there's some things i did gain from it and learn from it but that was the part that I disliked the most was selling people that to me, it's false hope that nearly anything, but these classes would be able to fix all of your problems and any issue you have will be fixed and any potential you have or unmet, you'll be able to meet. And that part of it, I don't like because I don't think that's accurate and real and tries to sell people that false hope. Um, so it's not bad that he's doing these classes. I hope he's getting a lot out of them, but that's just something for me of having that healthy skepticism when someone comes to you with anything, you know, whether it's about fixing your life or, oh, I have this diet that you do this and you're going to lose 20 pounds in a week and you can eat whatever you want or whatever it is. If people, when they try to sell us false hope or they try to tell us something that seems too good to be true, as much as we want to believe it because it can feel good and it taps into some of our magical thinking, which can come in from our childhood, especially if we have some trauma in childhood, we have to recognize that we have to let go of that false hope and if something sounds too good to be true, usually it is. Well, he um, um, he asked me to go to one of the classes with him mm-hmm. to register to see what the classes are all about. Mm-hmm. So I did, very expensive, mm-hmm. and uh, I did go to one of those classes, and I realized that the people who teach those classes, um, 
are not un, uh, they are not psychologists or they don't have the education. They get trained by the center. I had a lot of uh, questions uh, about the way they were uh, basically conducting uh, the class and themselves and. Uh, Okay. Well, I don't want to get too much more into the classes. I made just some general comments, and right. like lots right. of things, it's not for everyone. Some people do enjoy them. I have some friends that are doing some of the classes right now at Landmark, and they seem to be enjoying it and getting some things out of it, and right. that, that's great. And for some people, it just really doesn't resonate and work. For me, the the more general thing was of just anything, even a book. Like I actually don't like books when they say three easy ways to fix your relationship. It's almost always a book. I talk about judging or choosing books by their cover, but really a lot of times it's the title. But those types of titles don't appeal to me at all because I know that nothing important in life is just simple or easy. Or if many millions of people are struggling with something, usually the solution is not some easy thing. Um, and to sell people that false hope is very something I actually think not only, okay, it's not a good book, I think it's actually at times cruel or mean, and it could be exploitative to try to sell people false hope and take their money. I agree money. with you completely yeah. so. on that and the false hope. That's why I, I uh, when he asked me to continue, I said to uh, him that uh, it's not for me, but if you wish to continue, uh, that's your life and yeah. that's your time and your money. So I never continued. I finished one class and... Uh, that was it. I think the so way you said I, uh, it, to, the way you said it to me, that's that's kind of the right way. Is that I mean, it's not for me. I don't want to continue. If you're getting something out of it, great. That that's obviously your choice, and you guys can make different choices. I do have to just about wrap up because uh, I'm at a commercial break. I, but it seems like you wanted to add something else. Okay, I'll I'll hold on. Oh no, I mean, if it's something else, like we can we can finish it up now. What did you have in mind? Oh, I just just the fact that. Um, he asked me about um, your number again and wanted to uh, to see you. Okay. Uh, so that's what I wanted to bring up to see if it is even right for for that type of uh, relationship. That I mean, I, I said to him. I mean, he said I'm very very open uh, to any uh, any counseling and uh, again asked me. Uh, do I know anyone? Okay. I, well, I mean, again, yeah. I could see him, but and the most important thing for a therapist and client is for the client to feel good and comfortable to, with that um, therapist, that they can build a good relationship with them. So more important than what you think is what he thinks and feels with whatever therapist he sees. It's very important for them to have a good relationship. And so it's not that one therapist is the right therapist for everyone because it is about the relationship. So we'll see, you know, if you have that conversation, he chooses to, yes. whether it's called me Actually, or someone else. I, I, I asked him to, uh, if he wants to see you, uh, whether he feels comfortable or not, just to listen to one of your podcasts. Okay, well, he can do that. But even still, that's different than seeing someone in therapy. So, yeah, he can do that to, to get that feeling. And if any therapist people want to see maybe they wrote an article or you you know there's so many things online now but when you see them right. in person and experience it that's always different than just online so we'll see what happens there but nonetheless good luck thank you for your call thank you have a good day take care Bye-bye. all right going to another commercial break studio number 310-441-0555 we'll be right back welcome back in the previous segment 
few issues came up, but one of them I wanted to talk about actually because of a conversation I'd had with my brother, uh, Parham, over the weekend um, about false hope in general, but that we at times want to find these easy solutions and also related to that, that we sometimes want to believe that some people are like gods and that they have all the answers and they can't say anything wrong and so we should agree with them. Or because someone is a professor from Harvard or Yale, that everything they say must be true, or we should take their um, ideas as almost facts when this is not the case. One thing I actually mentioned to Parham is something I try to remember is if you look back over history, you'll see some very, I want to say brilliant, brilliant as in they're very intelligent people supporting some very stupid, if we look at it now, immoral and wrong ideas. People who in the United States were in favor of slavery were very often educated people who would write very eloquently about why slavery was necessary or important or even um, destined or what God wanted or whatever they said, but they would sometimes write it in some very nice looking language as far as they were eloquent and smart and educated and can use big words. And so a lot of times some very bad ideas have been written in very nice words and very smart sounding words even. But just because they sound smart doesn't mean the ideas are smart. And so this goes back to the idea that people who are very brilliant people, even people can be very smart, they are not infallible. They're not perfect. And we have to be careful not to create gods out of people. It's easier to just make people very black and white. This person is stupid and bad and everything they say is wrong. This person is good and right and genius and even godlike or a god. And whatever they say is the truth and I should just take it as fact. I don't have to think about it. And even sometimes you'll see people who are not religious as far as believing in an actual god or believing in some religion, but they'll treat human beings as gods and turn them into gods or turn some kind of science into a god where they'll just believe it without thinking about the issue, which is something that we'd like to do because it's easy and comfortable and it probably brings up something very childlike for us not to have to think and just feel that we're in the presence of an omnipotent power or someone that can just take care of us and we don't have to think for ourselves, but we always do. So... Um, I was talking to my brother about how Mozart wrote some songs that weren't very good. Some He composed some things that weren't good. He wrote a lot of masterpieces and was a genius when it came to music and wrote some amazing pieces, but it doesn't mean everything he ever did was good, even in music. Uh, or Einstein, of course, maybe thought of as one of the smartest people ever and very influential in science, but even he had bad scientific ideas. Some of his ideas didn't hold up. He was brilliant and could see things that others couldn't and answered questions or questioned things in a way that other people could not do, which should not be ignored. But if we try to just make him a god, we won't actually accurately look at what he has given us and shared with us. Some of it has proven to be wrong. So even in science, he was wrong. But if we take it a step further, people will say, well, because it's Einstein, let's hear what he said about other things. And I actually like some of the quotes I've seen him say about love, or I think it's attributed to him. I don't know if it is something that quote with education, that if you measure a fish by how well it climbs a tree or something like that, you're going to think it's stupid and that we have to be aware of how we measure uh, intelligence or how we 
um, assess people, and I think that's important, but it doesn't mean that everything he says about love and education and all things were right. Some of them are going to be quite maybe even backwards if we look at it now with how we've been able to advance or look at things. And so we can hear what he had to say, but we have to be aware of not turning him into a God that everything he said is the truth. And people often will do that. So even in his field of expertise, he was at times wrong, but especially when it comes to other things, we shouldn't assume that because he's Einstein and Einstein was smart, so everything he said was smart. Um, I, I think I'm smart, but I say a lot of stupid things too. Not everything I say makes sense. Even if I listen to my shows from a few years ago, I'm sure there's things that I would maybe even strongly disagree with now, or at least disagree with, that I used to say. And so I'm very grateful that people listen, and I hope I share some knowledge and some perspectives that are helpful. But I don't want people to hear what I say and just think, well, because I've said it, it has to be some kind of truth. I would hope they critically think about it, and even if they disagree, let me know, because that'll help me grow as well. And there's things I say that won't be right. And there's things that I'll look back on even myself and disagree with. And sometimes I'm just sharing my opinion. And that isn't a fact. It's just my opinion about something. And that's all that it is. And so I hope that I can have a positive influence on people, but recognize that not everything I say is true. And I don't want people to think that way. But I'm also saying this, that I hope people will recognize that we do this with lots of people and we don't uh, benefit from this when we try to make someone into a god. It's comfortable to not have to think about things. Oh, so-and-so said it? Okay, it's the truth. Let's just hear what he or she said. It's harder to have to think about things, but that's the reality. It's more realistic to actually have to think about something, to evaluate it, to hear things through. And even we're seeing this affecting corporate culture, where in corporations it was often thought of, well, if there's kind of a order of command or hierarchy. If the CEO says something, you have to listen to what he or she says no matter what and not question it. But you see in some newer, maybe you can call it open-minded, progressive types of corporate culture where everyone is supposed to even question each other. I think it's Ray Dalio, if I'm saying his name right. Um, and he has this type of, gosh, what is it called? Radical honesty or something where people, if you have an issue with something, you have to bring it up. You actually, in a way, could get in trouble if you recognize something and didn't bring up a problem or an issue, or if you disagreed with someone. Or in medical hospitals, we see this happening too, where there's a very clear hierarchy, um, where the doctors and the surgeons, for example, are the quote unquote gods and whatever they say goes, and you shouldn't disagree with them. But then when people started evaluating cases of malpractice or when things didn't go well, they recognize that sometimes the doctor was telling the nurse to do something and the nurse might've even said something like, wait, something and disagreed briefly. But then the doctor said, no, do it this way anyway. Or more than likely, often the, the nurse felt like they had no right uh, or there was no tolerance for them to question the doctor. So even though they knew something was wrong, they didn't say anything. Um, I remember reading about how they were looking at crashes that were happening and, and airline crashes. And they saw that sometimes when they looked at the transcripts, there was a captain and then the second in command. And the second in command sometimes noticed that something the captain was doing was wrong and maybe even questioned them. But because of how important authority was, they ended up doing the wrong thing, which ended up taking lives. And they saw that in cultures where hierarchy was more important or where it was even thought of or frowned upon even more strongly to disagree with someone who was an authority figure, 
they were less likely to challenge the authority and then more likely to do the bad things or the things that ended up costing lives in this case because they were not even okay or comfortable in that moment where it literally was life or death to challenge the authority. So they recognized that the change and create new protocols where actually the second in commands had to, or they had to confirm with the captain certain things, or I don't remember the exact details, but to challenge this way of approaching things where they couldn't challenge the authority because he or she was always right and you don't have a right to challenge them. And so this is in some extreme cases where we're looking at pilots or if we're looking at um, military situations and then even in hospitals, it's very important, but even in our own lives to recognize that we at times don't like to think about things. And yes, we want to think that we're such rational human beings that we don't get influenced by emotion or things that are not important, but I hope you can just completely put that aside. And if someone tells me I don't get affected by emotion at all, all that tells me is that they have no awareness of how much the things that they're feeling or feelings they have is affecting them. And so actually I don't trust that person to make big decisions because they don't seem to me to have awareness of what's going on within them to recognize when they're being influenced by certain things. I talked about the study which found that judges who were on parole um, committees, they found that they were more likely to deny parole, meaning that someone would come and they would potentially be let out early or um, somehow get some more leniency. They were more likely to deny parole as it got closer to lunchtime. And then right after lunch, the rate of granting parole became higher again. And they recognized that this was likely because when it got closer to lunch, the judges were getting hungry and not feeling so good, feeling uncomfortable. And we don't feel as comfortable, we don't feel as good. And then we're faced with this decision of giving someone parole or being lenient, and we don't feel as good, so we're more likely to say no. Maybe even we think, well, I don't feel good, so that tells me I should say no in this situation. And we would like to believe, and especially I'm sure those judges would like to believe, that they're not going to be influenced on making this, it's not really life or death, but it has a huge impact on people's lives. This type of a decision won't be affected by how hungry they are or the fact that they're feeling uncomfortable physically, but that's the reality. And especially I think that study was interesting because we think of judges as people who are supposed to be very good at being rational and just looking at the arguments and looking at the information and making a judgment, judges in their word, based on just those things and not to be influenced by un irrelevant or unrelated factors, especially factors about themselves. But it makes sense. If you don't feel very good, you're going to see things a little bit more negatively. And so people who are a little bit hungry are going to be a little bit more negative in how they judge someone. And so, yes, I know for a lot of people, they might hear this. And if they were the person making the decision, they would say, oh, there's no way that my decisions to grant parole or my decisions to hire or fire or who to hire are influenced by things like if I'm hungry or not. That's crazy. And how dare you talk to me that way that I would be that irrational and influenced by stupid things like that. But the truth is we all are being influenced by lots of things. Our emotions are a big part of how we assess things and how we act and what we think all the time, who we vote for, what issues we support or are against. It's much more emotional than it is anything else. And so when it comes back to this topic of we hear someone saying something because we feel good about this person or because it feels good to just say that everything they say is true and to hold on to that, 
when they say something, we'll justify to ourselves, yes, that makes sense because blah, blah, blah. Now, if it was someone we hate and someone we totally disagree with, we'll find a way to tear apart whatever they say. Oh, that doesn't make sense. No, that's not true. Even if it was the same statement. But to go back to the original topic or the original thought, I think it's so important for us to recognize that we create gods out of people because it feels good. It gives us a comfort. It makes it so we don't have to think. We allow someone else to think and we don't have to evaluate each thing that person says by saying they're all good. But we do ourselves a disservice and even really we do that person a disservice when we treat them in that way. So even if you think you're not religious, be aware of how you might create gods out of other people, how you might do what we can call splitting, making someone all good or all bad. And then so that way, after the fact, you don't have to think about what they say or what they do. You just take it as either all good or all bad, no matter what. And also when you evaluate what people say and think, even if they're great thinkers, great minds, it doesn't mean that everything they said was true. Every idea they had was good. Every statement they made was some kind of moral fact recognize that the most brilliant minds could say things maybe more eloquently, but still say some stupid ideas in very eloquent words. It doesn't make everything they're saying true. All right, going into our last commercial break, studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the last segment, I wanted to talk about families and um, the ways that family dynamics can play out and the different roles that people play in their families. And this is why, when I say different roles and dynamics, this is why it can be so important when we're trying to understand anyone, but especially when it comes to trying to understand a child, to understand the family dynamics and the family system, to understand what is actually going on with that child. Because we even have a term for the the child that's brought in consider the problem, so I will call them the identified patient. But very often we know that that child is expressing some behavior that might actually not be that this kid has a problem, which is unfortunately what the parents might be thinking, but this child is actually expressing some kind of dysfunction within the family. So you have a child that's acting out because the mom and dad have a really chaotic marriage that has really bad fights, and the child is being exposed to that. And you want to try to understand that. And so we always want to understand the context because that has such a huge impact on how we act and how we behave. And what you see is that people in a family, and this is really unconsciously the way it gets established usually, but they take on different roles that helps create and maintain some type of homeostasis. So it tries to keep some kind of peace within the home. So even the child that acts out, sometimes we can recognize they're acting out because this allows for mom and dad to be distracted on their own bad marriage and together come together and take care of this kid in a way that actually balances the family a little bit better. So the child gets the blame, but really the core problem is the marriage between the husband and the wife is not going so well. And this is leading to this dysfunction that the child is expressing. So that's why when the child they come in and say, oh, my child has this problem and his being so difficult or doing this or that, of course, we pay attention to what the child is going through, try to understand what they're expressing and experiencing. But we don't just see the child as, oh, you're the problem, let's fix the kid. Because if we don't first recognize what's going on, we don't really understand the situation. And if we don't change the environment, very it's very unlikely that we'll see that positive and lasting change that we'd be looking for in that child. So now, one of the roles that 
kids can play, especially in the family, it could be that of peacekeeper and the one who takes care of other people. Um, a book that I really enjoyed because I thought it was very insightful is The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller. And in that book, she doesn't, I don't know if she uses that word peacekeeper, but she does talk about the gifted child as one who can, uh, is sensitive to and aware of the feelings of other people. And then if you pair that type of a gift with a parent who has some kind of an emotional need that they're trying to get through the child, you unfortunately create this dynamic where the parent, or sorry, the child becomes like a parent to their own parent and will be taking care of them. So if they have a depressed mother, they might be trying to cheer them up or recognize that when I get sad and mom is already sad, it makes her too sad. So let me put away my sadness or she wants me to act in this way or let me not get in trouble in that way. And so we can have these children who unfortunately from a very young age can take on too much of responsibility for other people people's feelings and experiences. And this is why even on this show, it happens often where stories will come up, but also in therapy and just in general, we see this dynamic play out where parents will say, okay, this is my problem, kid. He or she is acting out, getting in trouble in school, talking back, doing this, doing that. And then I have this other kid, oh, she is just an angel or he is an angel, doesn't cause any problems, make, doesn't do anything bad, always does this, always does that, is just perfect. And I always say, Yes, of course, we want to pay attention to that child that's acting out, try to understand that better. But that other child, that child might be playing the role of the peacekeeper. They see that there's too much stress and chaos in this family already, which doesn't feel good. Let me not add to that. So first of all, let me not share any of my own problems or have my own needs or wants because that can create conflict or pressure or stress. So let me put those away. And also let me see how I can take care of other people. How can I help mom and dad when they're fighting to resolve their fight better? How can I cheer up mom and dad if they are down? How can I take care of my other sibling or siblings to make sure they're okay as well, to make sure that the whole dynamics of the household are more calm? And so as much as this child seems so okay, look, she's never crying or he's never crying and they seem okay and doing everything fine at school, this child might be holding in so much of their own feeling and their own experience. And in that book I just mentioned, The Drama of the Gifted Child, it talks about how this type of a child is, unfortunately gets very good at putting away their own feelings and their own needs to the point where they get disconnected from them. I liked this one analogy that was in the book or this image that uh, she shared from someone, this boy who was saying her mother was very intrusive, but also let's say couldn't handle her, his sad feelings. So he found it was as if he said, it was like I had a glass house and she could look in and he realized the solution was to bury his feelings underground. That way the mom could no longer see them. But unfortunately when he did that, he also realized he had to hide them from himself. He had to put them underground. So very often we'll find that people that become the peacekeeper, the person who is taking care of everyone in the family and who is not trying to add any more stress, they start to become detached and disconnected from their own feelings. They're not often aware of what they're feeling because they've learned that their own feelings just get in the way. If I'm trying to make things more calm, 
these pesky feelings just make it harder. Or if I express them, it gets harder. So it's better for me not to feel them at all. So these types of children grow up to be adults that unfortunately carry this forward, this mindset of putting away their own feelings, putting away their own needs, taking care of other people. And they, in a way, like this feeling of taking care of other people. It's actually sometimes the only way they feel good in a relationship. But over time, they don't feel good because they feel an emptiness. Something feels missing. Or at times, they'll build a resentment towards people where they're giving to them and they're not getting something back. And so their relationships, unfortunately, can be unfulfilling in that way as well. And that can be problematic. There can be this huge disconnection between them and themselves, which then really makes it hard for them to have a genuine close relationship with someone else because they're disconnected from their own feelings. They can't actually let someone connect to them. And they create relationships where it's more about them taking care of other people. And there's always people that want to get taken care of so they can create these relationships that at times initially even feel really good for both people. The person who wants to take care of people, they feel good that they're giving. And the person that wants to get taken care of, they feel good that they're receiving and feel that they're being nurtured and taken care of. And so in a way that dynamic fits, but over time it doesn't work out. Because as I mentioned before, usually resentment will build in this person, even though they feel disconnected from their feelings, it won't feel good over time when they start to realize they're giving more than they're getting. Because deep down, that child who learned to take care of other people and to put his or her own feelings or needs aside, always wanted to be taken care of themselves. And of course, they needed that and they deserved that. Every child is supposed to be allowed to be a child, not to be the caretaker of their parents. But unfortunately, when you have a child with this type of ability or gift, that they're sensitive to that, and you have an unstable home or unstable parents who are going to in some way use the child consciously or unconsciously to get their own emotional needs or to be taken care of emotionally, that baby and that child never gets to be a child. And so they have this unfinished business, so to speak, or this yearning or desire to be taken care of, to be nurtured, to get to be a baby themselves that they never got to experience. So sometimes you've likely talk to a kid or a teenager or a young adult and you got you say, gosh, you're so much wiser than your years. And that does fit for a lot of people. But unfortunately, as much as it could seem like a strength, and in some ways it is, it's also coming from a place of they never got the space to be a child. So unfortunately, they had to grow faster than their years, which is not good and not healthy for them overall. They had to be an adult when they were supposed to still be a kid. And so now at times you'll see them as adults. And what you'll notice, it'll be fascinating that they'll have these both of these aspects. One side of them will be super mature and almost too worried about taking care of everyone and taking care of themselves. But because they've had this arrested development of their childhood where they never got to be a child, they'll still also have this side that maybe is even reckless or they'll have some kind of behavior, things that they do where the child is just wanting to be free and not have to be the one that takes care of everyone and has also an anger because of that, which can be destructive either to themselves or others. Oftentimes it's destructive towards themselves because they have a hard time in relationships of hurting other people. So they might do something that hurts them in some way because they have this side that never got to be expressed. And so if you're an adult that has this situation, it can be very hard to change this because you're so used to taking care of other people. It's become such an unconscious strategy for you 
that it feels uncomfortable for you to express having needs and wants and your feelings or to be taken care of by someone else. So they have this very strong ambivalence. On one side, they so deeply want to be taken care of, but they're also so afraid of it that it doesn't feel okay, it doesn't feel right, and they try to push that away. Because also something they get out of not having needs or wants is this feeling of superiority. Everyone else has needs and wants, but not me. So it's actually them trying to protect themselves and them being afraid of being vulnerable that also plays a part and makes it so hard for them. And usually it's through lots of deep exploration um, or even really psychotherapy that someone could start to change this mindset and change this strategy where, you know what, I'm allowed to have needs also. I can be in a relationship that's mutually satisfying, that I get taken care of as well as taking care of someone else. If I massage them, they massage me back. If I get them a gift, they get me a gift back. It doesn't have to just be one way and it can be very challenging. So as an adult, you have to recognize that as much as you might get mad at the people you're in relationships with, be them family relationships or romantic relationships, you are also comfortable in creating the dynamics that you so much don't like. It's comfortable as far as it's your comfort zone, but it doesn't feel good. And so you have to be aware of making that change. And if you're a parent, I just urge you to recognize that if you have multiple children and one of them is the one you think is the problem and the one that's acting out and the one that needs help, be aware that there's often that silent child who is not causing problems, who is so caring about other people, who's taking care of other people and who doesn't add any stress to your life who might be holding in a lot. We have to allow our kids to be kids, which means sometimes causing a mess or creating a mess. Not only just making a mess physically, but having messy feelings, having a breakdown or a tantrum, not feeling good, getting mad at us. We have to give them that space and make sure you give your space to the, the space to be a child because it can be very stressful running a family. Actually, not maybe it is to have kids and have work and bills and all the things you need to do to make things go around. It is very difficult. So we sometimes really want for there to be a kid that makes it easier or doesn't make things harder. Or we might even not be aware of it because we're just so aware of the things that are going wrong. We don't see the child that might be more quiet because they're holding things in. And so we want to make sure we don't ignore that child because that child is often holding in a lot of pain is also learning, unfortunately, that I get loved by not having needs. I get loved by being the perfect kid that doesn't ever disagree or doesn't ever cause any problems. But that doesn't allow for them to actually develop into a, a child or to be a child and then to develop into a full human being that has wants, needs, good sides, bad sides, and everything in between. And we don't give them that space. So there are these caretaker roles that people fill in the family and we can understand it but we also want to give people that space that they don't have to just always be good and even if you find yourself describing one of your kids as an angel or as perfect as much as that sounds good and even sounds like it's good to them it's not good for them and something is wrong that should actually be more of an alarm to us wait why is my kid never causing any trouble at all why is my kid never disagreeing with me why is my kid not getting upset why is my kid not being a kid? That should be alarming to us. Having children is difficult. They are challenging. And they need to go through that or be that way in order to actually grow. And the caretakers in the family, 
can often get ignored, but we want to make sure we don't ignore them. So if you're a parent, be aware of that. And if you find yourself, you are a caretaker, be ready to be on a journey that will be difficult for you to allow yourself to have needs and wants. It will be challenging. It will feel uncomfortable. It'll feel even wrong for you. And you'll likely want to go back to your old ways. But I hope you'll push through that because if you come out the other side, you'll get to be a full human being who can have real, genuine, mutually satisfying relationships where you have needs, your partner has needs, and you're both there for one another. All right, that's the end of today's show. Again, the book of the week for this week is Tyrannical Minds by Dean A. Haycock, Psychological Profiling, Narcissism, and Dictatorship. I'll talk about that on Monday's show. Uh, thank you to Ghazala here in the studio. All the callers and listeners, you've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. Have a wonderful day.